Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Lexi. My name's Sam. Joining us today is Derek Tung. He's the owner of the Poly G's in Logan Square. Logan Square is a neighborhood in Chicago. And it's very famous for its restaurant scene. You might be able to thank, who would we thank for that? I think I want to thank Derek today for his contributions to the pizza scene in Chicago and specifically Poly G's. Polly G's and its staff. No, they're doing great things over there. They've started a takeout window instead of doing full uh, full table service indoors due to the pandemic. And um, Derek's got really interesting insight on how to navigate the current climate, as well as how he manages his staff and allows them free and open creativity, even with all the restrictions going on for restaurants right now. So I'm really stoked to be bringing you all this episode. And I know Alexi is too. So we're just going to dive in. Woodfire, Detroit, style, pizza. pizza. Let's, Let's dive, dive and get, get heavy. heavy. Thanks for joining us, Derek. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. So I guess we'll just start off right out of the gate asking you kind of how you got into restaurants um, and specifically uh, how you ended up with Pauly G's and yeah, just kind of give us a synopsis of where it all began for you. For sure, for sure. Uh, I fell in love with pizza probably around 2008 or nine, like in the professional sense. Like I, at some point I realized like after having a, my first Neapolitan pizza made in front of me, I'm like, I gotta learn how to make this. This is phenomenal. This is one of the best pizzas I ever had. So I went down this rabbit hole pizza making forum online and it's just like tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of recipes, discussions around different like text, textures and what kind of flowers you need, levels of hydration, levels of fat, all this stuff. And so I started reading through all this, watching YouTube videos, making my own pizzas at home, and eventually said, you know, I should turn this into a business. So I did this thing called like hybrid entrepreneurism for a while, right? So you're doing your day job, you're doing your nine to five. And then Wednesday nights, I'd spend three hours in the kitchen, at a professional kitchen with some old high school buddies. Saturday, we'd spend all day at the farmer's market. Sundays, we're doing private events. And eventually I just realized like, this is, this is what I live for, seeing guests come back guests bringing their own families and friends coming back and saying, this is amazing pizza. You have to meet Derek. You have to meet the team. Um, and it just became a thing where like hospitality just really rung true for me. Mm -hmm. um, so eventually after a year of that, I, uh, I reached out to a bunch of mentors, um, Polly G being one of them. And, you know, at that time, Polly was looking to expand as well. So maybe a little self-serving, but we connected with each other, got to know each other better. Um, visited each other. I feel like I'm talking about like we were dating or something, right? Like I sent, a, <laughs> sent an email, had a phone call, visited each other, um, and eventually decided to work together. Um, and now four years later, we've, we've been at Apologies Logan Square for, for a little bit. So Interesting. Yeah. Um, so in this transition phase where you were doing this um, um, Wednesday nights, were you operating your own little pizza business out of a kitchen and doing delivery and takeout or? No, we weren't doing delivery and takeout yet. You know, during that time, pop-ups weren't super hot yet either. So what we were doing was we were just prepping the dough, getting all the ingredients ready. Mm -hmm. um, the dough that I designed at the time, you know, we, we prepared the same day and then it had a two to three day rest period. And so Saturday morning would be the time that we'd, you know, unravel it, get it going. Get the you know Friday night we'd fire up the wood fired oven on a trailer, log it to the farmer's market the next morning, and just get things rolling. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I think um, it's cool that farmers markets were an option for you to do that because, as you said, pop up markets really they've they've really only been a thing now that's been popular for what two three years at most I would say. 
Um, were you doing that in Chicago or was this more out in the suburbs or? So it was mostly in the Southwest suburbs. I had okay. applied to uh, Green City Market and then I applied to a couple in the suburbs. Green City, I think already had two pizza places doing great stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a great interview. It was interesting to see the market, but ultimately it stayed close to home. Uh, and part of that was just, you know, when you're traveling with a wood fired oven that like I built myself with some friends. None of us have a background in like knowing how to lay bricks properly or any of that stuff. So, you know, all those little bumps on the road end up loosening the bricks and loosening everything up. Ooh. So we ended up really staying close, helped helped a lot with the longevity of the oven. Mm -hmm. Yep. And what uh, what time frame was it that you were uh, participating in the markets and uh, how long did it take from the point of like discovery that oh shit, I want to make pizza now to uh, to ending up at the farmer's market. What was that uh, from a time frame perspective? So I think that's probably about a year, year and a half. So not a huge amount of time, but during mm -hmm. that year and a half, it was like every weekend we had five or six family or friends over. We were testing pizzas, making them on the baking steel, doing all sorts of things, playing with doughs, playing with ingredients. Um, so just not, not too long to get into the farmer's market. I think getting into the farmer's market is... You know, if, for anyone that wants to start, if you don't have a restaurant that you can pop up with, that's the hot thing now, right? Mm -hmm. um, getting into farmer's market is a great way to go. But, you know, it's more of a commitment than a pop-up too because now you're committing to at least like every other week a full season at the mm -hmm. farmer's market, which is great. It's how you yeah. get to know your community, how you get to know what's out there and make connections. Definitely. And it feeds into that aspect that you already touched on a little bit, building that community within the hospitality of doing what you're doing. Um, what kind of made you, do you have a defining moment that really shines out to you that you were like, oh, this is hospitality. This is why I want to do this. I don't know if I have a defining moment per se. I mean, I think it's, I mean, the defining moment for me every time, like the, the best moment is seeing when someone first bites into the pizza they've never experienced before, right? And if it's mm -hmm. good, you can see it on their faces. You can see it in their body language. Everything mm -hmm. relaxes. They kind of nod a little bit and then a smile creeps on, onto their face. And that's when you know you've served them a product that like they're happy with. Something in that moment, even for all of us, right? You mm -hmm. have a moment where you can let go of all the worries in life and just for a moment enjoy like what's right in front of you. Mm -hmm. And then they start talking with whoever they're with, their guests, their friends, their family. And it's just creating those small communal moments, which I think is really, that's the most rewarding part for me. Mm -hmm. um, and just, like I said, seeing them come back and having them bring friends, like you can't have a higher compliment than that. If someone wants to share your pizza with someone else, that means the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I've brought you to Poly G's. I've brought so many friends to Poly G's. <laughs> Thank you. I mean... The pizza is phenomenal. For those of you who haven't had it, it's everything from the Neapolitan style to the the squares, which I believe you can only get here in Chicago. Is that correct? Or? Detroit, yeah. right? Yeah, it's Detroit inspired. It's very similar to Detroit style. The differences are minuscule now. Um, I think the one, the Poly G's in Columbus is doing a square as well. Mm -hmm. We've kind of compared notes, but we don't have the exact same processes or the exact same dough. So this is a little different. I haven't tried it yet, but I got to make it out there when COVID's over and check it out. So, well, this is interesting. So you're a part of, uh, I don't want to mischaracterize it. It's not a friend. Is it a franchise? It or? is a franchise. So, so what, legal definition. Yeah, it's a franchise. So what, uh, tell me why this isn't Subway. Because <laughs> you have no creativity with someone, right? No. But they're so, sandwich artists. Sandwich artists. They're artisans. Sandwich artisans that can like, but you can only make what's on the board or whatever the person wants. Um, so one of the big sell points for me to work with Paul G, not only did we get along well, was that, you know, he wants each of us to run the shop like it's our own shop. So we always started with like 70% of what Paulie had on his menu, his greatest hits, whatever did really well with his New York crowd, right? And then after that, um, the rest of it is just us working with like, what are our flavors? What's our background? 
Um, who's local that's making really great stuff that you want to highlight at your pizzeria? And mm-hmm. so all those things kind of tied in. And now it's more like 80% of the menu is more what we do and more local to us as opposed to like when we first opened, 70% was Polly's. Um, and that's that's a big piece of it, right? Like I've been able to go down and do different styles of pizza. I have staff members making uh, bread fresh bread every day out of the ovens, two styles of bread. We're doing ice cream sandwiches. We're starting to do soups and like make our own ciders now for the winter. I mean, it's it's part of the fun to be able to have that creativity. You know, mm-hmm. nothing against Subway, but I just don't want to be defined <laughs> by everything. We have. You're like, you, you have to make the bread this way and you have to make the sandwich that way. You know, it's, it's not nearly as fun when you're executing someone else's dream. When mm-hmm. you can execute your own dream as part of it, it's it's just so much more enjoyable. How Definitely. do you, how do you go about, um, instilling a culture where your staff can have that creativity within the context of something that's a little bit more like a franchise. Obviously you've proven that something that what you're doing works. And so you're given the freedom yourself, but there's a difference between having the freedom yourself and then empowering your staff as well too. Can you talk about that dynamic a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, so especially now with COVID-19, we, you know, we had a while when we reopened and we were just really slow. So it gave the staff a lot of time to play with ideas, play with other concepts, try to strategize like, what do people want? What's gonna draw them to our like our newly open slice window to get them going? Mm-hmm. Um, but even before that, you know, we were, I always wanted to push myself and my staff from a creative standpoint. So we would rotate three pizzas off the menu every single month. So we would do one new like herbivore based in a vegan convertible Detroit style pizza. We would do one omnivore and then we would do one wood fired pizza every single month. And you know, staff would get creative. They'd play with stuff and they, it, be their chance to test out new combinations, bring in new ingredients, seasonal, local, whatever it is, and share it with different guests too. Because you know they have they have their fans as well, and you can, it's super interesting. You can tell when certain staff members make a certain pizza based on how they <laughs> load it, how much fats in it, what the flavor profile is. Like I can I can blind taste almost any pizza now that my staff make and figure out who made it. Um, you know, and that's that's just their personality coming out on a pizza. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know we've we've done creativity basically from the start, and really. If, if I was tr- to try to hold on to it all myself, like my creativity is only limited to so much, right? Mm-hmm. 10 brains is far better than one. And you get mm-hmm. so many different backgrounds and profiles. You get to try all sorts of new stuff. And this way, you know, it frees me up to be able to work on other things, work on the business, talk to more guests instead of being in the kitchen all the time as well. So it's been amazing to just bring on more and more staff that love to cook. And that's one of our big questions. Yeah. You know, if we're going to bring someone in on the prep team or on the pizza team, they have to have an inherent love of cooking at some mm-hmm. point. Right. I don't want them as much as possible. I don't want staff that's just like, oh, this is my like job. I come in for six to eight hours a day, knock it out. And that's all I want to do. I don't want to look at pizza ever again. I want people <laughs> that are like passionate about what they do. And that's that's hard to find. But I'm mm-hmm. lucky. A lot of my staff have been pretty passionate about what they do. And, you know, you want to reward that with some creativity and there's nothing better than when they see like their pizza on the menu and their friends are coming to get it or our regulars are like, that pizza's amazing. You have to add that to the menu permanently. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's that's all of the fun for us, for sure. Definitely. I've had and continue to have many friends who work at Poly G's and everyone's just so, you can tell they're happy to be there. And, and I think a lot of that comes from the creativity you allow them to have in something that they are passionate about, you know, and it's, um, it's hard to find in the restaurant industry as a whole, where chefs usually dominate the kitchen and they don't allow their staff to have a lot of freedom. And it's even more rare to see an owner kind of give, uh, their employees ownership over menu changes and certain like weekly specials as well. That's really almost unheard of. And it's cool to see it translate to the staff so well, because even, I mean, 
I've seen it in the back of house when, you know, they'll come up to me or I think it happened to you and me when we were there. Um, Dan, uh, yeah, yeah, he Danny. brought us uh Danny brought us a pizza. He's like, I've been trying this out. Like, let me know what you think. And he's like really into it. And we're like, Absolutely. hell yeah. Absolutely. Like, that's awesome. And it's cool to see that passion on the back of house side, but also on the front of house side with cocktails and, you know, how the beer menu rotates and how it's curated by your front of house staff. Like everyone in that restaurant is so enthusiastic to be there and it's really something we've been talking about a lot that i feel has been lacking in service industry as a whole lately yeah. and like just take COVID out of it because um, i'm more talking about pre-covid mm-hmm. um there was this lack of authenticity from almost every facet of uh workers in the restaurant industry and that comes from top down um is this something you kind of have noticed as well and you're trying to divert from that model or is this just something that's inherent in you and you want to propel people forward as well as pushing yourself? I think, I think it's probably more inherent. It's not something that I, you know, really thought of logically to say, you know, I want to have a environment where staff have lots of creativity. I mean, my biggest takeaway from working the corporate world always was, you know, you need to surround yourself and put people on your team that are smarter than you and better than you at what you do. Because if you don't, if you're the best at what you do all the time and you, you know, you have that mindset, I'm the best at what I do, I get to make all the decisions, then you can, you're holding your team back ultimately, right? You're like the highest point of elevation you can be. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I've got dough guys like Travis, I've got like Chef background chefs like Tony, who makes them Yvonne, who's creating great like vegan stuff. Her stuff All these so people good. just have like so much more experience in different areas that, you know, why would I want to hold them back? Like if mm-hmm. they want to experiment, experiment, introduce it to me, introduce it to the staff. Let's get a meal out of it. Let's see what we need to refine about it. Like we, we talk as a team all the time, right? No, no one does things in a silo. They may make it at first and then we talk as a team like, so what's the texture like? What's the flavor like? How's the appearance look? What do we need to do to refine this? And we give them critical feedback to go backwards. And it's, you know, it really stems even from the beginning, right? Like we were talking before we started, my knowledge of beer is not great. Like mm-hmm. I can do almost any job in the restaurant right now, in my restaurant, except for mixed cocktails. And I can pour a beer okay. I get a lot of foam on top. I'm still working <laughs> on that. Um, but like, you know, I know my weaknesses. And so the last thing I want to do is be the one to be like, well, I'm going to define the beer list or I'm going to define the cocktail list. Am I going to be the veto if I think something's terrible? Sure. But I'm mm-hmm. always going to talk to people that know more about it than I do and get their opinions first, knowing that just because I don't like it doesn't mean that other people won't like it. Right. And so mm-hmm. it's good to just understand the team, get a, get a good team feel about it. Um, you know, it's it's about working with that team, giving them a voice, giving them an opinion and knowing that that helps them realize that they matter and they they help guide where we go as a restaurant. Mm hmm. So taking that mentality and guiding you into COVID a little bit, um, did you ever end up opening the restaurant inside when restrictions lifted or did you just start off with the window and that's been your model? Yeah, uh, we never looked at opening up inside. You know, Mm -hmm. I think the way I've been interpreting the numbers, it's we're just not done yet, right? COVID, Mm -hmm. COVID's at a point right now where we're seeing a resurgence in Chicago. Um, And you know, we're, we're on like the verge of closing back out all the restaurants and bars again. Um, what I've done with my staff is I've always taken individual temperatures. So, you know, every day I'm, I'm, I've cut back from six days a week to five days a week being on staff now and working with them. Um, so I, I talk to every staff member. I make sure that I have at least a few minutes every day to talk to them, see how they're doing, see where Mm -hmm. their head's at, see what's going on with their families and lives. And then, you know, about once every two months, we'll put out a survey and just say, Hey, respond to this Google survey. 
how do you feel about us if we opened up here, if we opened up just the front area for pickups, if we just continued down the window model, if we opened up for full service. Uh, and I use that to kind of dictate everything in terms of how we move forward. Um, there's been points where I've had to make an unpopular decision. Like in mm -hmm. June when we wanted to reopen, the staff definitely was not ready for it. A lot of them wanted to stay home. Mm -hmm. There's a mix of, you know, some of that was the, the feds were paying a pretty good extra rate on top of everything, mm -hmm. but also some of them just felt unsafe. And so we did our best to like safe proof everything, create a situation where you would have very limited guest interaction. Um, and it took a little bit for them to adjust to it. So like I said, I get ultimate veto power, but as much as possible, I, I want to work with the staff and make sure that they're comfortable because they, they keep the place running, you know, not just for the two days that I'm not there, mm -hmm. but every day that I, even that I am there, you know, they, they help make sure everything's smooth. They make sure the experience is right where it needs to be because I can't be everywhere at once. Right. Um, and I want, I want them to be happy. And so we're, we're doing our best to keep them safe and mentally as well as physically. I think the mental aspect is super important, especially right now, you know, everyone, um, in theory is isolating and, you know, it's hard to go out and r resume life as normal. And for, uh, especially a lot of people in restaurant industry, uh, we're extroverts. Oh, for sure. We like being around people. And so it's a very challenging time to try and navigate the mental headspace of if I can't go out and I can't be around my people, like eventually it just slowly grinds you away. And it's, it's really thoughtful that you're keeping, you know, you're checking up with everyone every week and like making sure they're good um, mentally. Cause that's obviously not something everyone has at the fore, like forefront of their mind. Um, so then with that kind of mindset, you ended up, with listening to them and doing this kind of takeout window. Um, and it seems like it's going really, really well for you. And um, it makes me really happy because I, I get to continue to get my poly G's <laughs> fixed, but it's also a way to go support you, not be surrounded by people, not putting your staff at risk by having a bunch of people in an enclosed space. And you also got to try out a new style of pizza that you haven't been able to do before. Oh, for uh, sure. New York sure. style. How's we've, that been? We've been working on that New York style probably for a year now. Um, we've been wanting to open up a New York slice shop uh, in, in the city, but we just haven't found the location for it. And right now we just we just signed on the new location like two weeks ago. Oh, wow. So Congrats. Super, super exciting. Also super risky opening in the middle of COVID. So we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, I mean, the window the window has been amazing. Honestly, the, the major reason why we opened the window was so that I wouldn't have to let go of basically all of my front of house, like all my bartenders and all my servers. Because, mm -hmm. you know, the, the safest move for us easily would have been to just say, all right, let's fire up talk. Let's do pickup deliveries. Let's do pre-orders. Um, let's fire off the squares and the wood-fired pizzas. People pick it up, retain all the kitchen staff and... Maybe we'll keep one or two front of house staff to keep like pizzas moving out. But that's letting go of a lot of people. And, mm -hmm. you know, given the current conditions too, like where, where are people going to find jobs? Like this, is, this is a ridiculously tough time for people to find jobs. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I wanted to find a way that we could build something so that hopefully we can, you know, have that customer interaction, keep the front of house engaged in some fashion or another. And it's been great. It's been great through the summer. It's been great through the spring or I'm sorry, through the fall. Um, winter scares me a little. So we're, mm -hmm. we're going to see what happens. Yeah, but it's uh, it's also admirable that you've taken you've taken a look at COVID and created a new revenue center instead of instead of tried to tweak uh, an existing one mm -hmm. or just outright take the hit too. Which I mean, 
not many people can afford to do that. But we're see. I mean, I read an article today of some restaurants that are just like, you know what? It's winter, and they're washing their they're hands. Washing their hands of it. Yeah. Uh, and it, while that's sad, if they can afford to do that, that's great. But a lot of people are just not in a position to do that. Yeah. And so, yeah, you've created this new revenue stream that's hopefully going to keep you going. And you know, on that note, with the takeout or the new restaurant that's uh your covid baby i think you have a funny pizza story about <laughs> yeah i yeah. mean I, I think i think pizza there are certain food types that are that are a little bit different than the places than what the the food that the places are that are closing are serving mm -hmm. some of those places are highly experiential they throw food on the table and the table's edible <laughs> um like that's a difficult thing to take home. And I think that those restaurants already tried something different early in the pandemic, and it's going to be challenging to do another different thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, whereas with pizza, I, I mean, I think this was two weeks ago, I was going out to get uh, to get pizza. Yeah. And there were three delivery cars on my block. So like between Belmont and school on my street, there were three cars and people going out with pizzas. This was at like 7.30 on a Friday. <laughs> awesome. So there were three other schmoes on my block getting <laughs> pizza. And that kind of made me think quite a bit that, you know, there are types of food that um, are communal in nature. And that's one of the, you know, pizzas, the one that is probably most universally uh, accepted the in the world, but like really in this country as well too. Definitely, maybe more than a lot of other like uh, we all share the one plate uh, <laughs> kinds of food. Mm -hmm. um, put a pin in that for a second, though. I am <laughs> I am uh, I am curious about. Um, you know, it sounds like you've stayed a step or two behind what the city re what the city has said is okay for restaurants we to do yeah. um, with. Are you, in retrospect, it sounds like this was something that you you did based more on consensus than uh, than a, it was strategic and consensus based, right? Uh, looking back on how open opening and closings have occurred, are you happy that this is how things have been so far? I mean, I, I can't say I'm happy with how things are going, <laughs> right? Like it's, I mean, I'm I'm happy with our operations. I'm happy that my staff feels comfortable enough now to operate a window indefinitely even right through through the winter and hopefully to whenever COVID ends. I mean, I, I'm not happy that we're going through spikes and going through more restrictions. Wrong word. Definitely. Yeah. Bars. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, but no, absolutely. I mean, we've definitely planned for it a little bit and we've, you know, from the moment we reopened, we talked about, you know, how, how long is this really going to last and how long can we maintain this for? And mm -hmm. so that's, that's the big question for us too, right? Like I've, I've had one profitable month and then one break even month and then we'll see what this past month does but you know at this point I'm not I'm not looking to make big profits if we can make a little bit of money on the top so we can keep the HVAC system fresh and new when we reopen and get some new chairs for the place like ideally if we can just generate a little bit of profit it'll help us when we have to reopen again but even if we just break even I you know I've been able to keep all our staff on board with the same amount of hours pretty much that they had before and that's that's been everything for me. Mm -hmm. um, I know for like our front of house staff, like they're having a rough time at it because it's like you said, like they can't talk to guests anymore, right? I have bartenders that are used to like seeing regulars all the time, people that they cultivated for the restaurant because these people come every single Thursday or every single Monday to see their favorite bartender. Now they can't see them 
and now their tips are way down because we're splitting tips across the house evenly. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, it's, it's tough. It's tough financially. It's tough mentally. Um, so, you know, as much as we, as much as we're in an okay space from a like business financial standpoint, I, I always see that like the staff is just slowly wearing down, like you talked about and just trying mm-hmm. to figure out like, what do we do to keep their morale up? So, you know, I'm still playing. We're still trying to figure out how to move forward and keep things as, as light as we can. Mm-hmm. It's unprecedented times. It's it hard to navigate and it, it requires innovation on everyone's, um, everyone's front to kind of push forward. Right. Yeah. It's like we were talking, uh, Lexi and I, we anticipate when everything is said and done, what is the restaurant landscape going to look like? And it's going to be entirely different. I mean, we've had hundreds of restaurants already closed. Yeah. Yeah. So right there is a huge difference because Chicago is facing an oversaturation in restaurants. Um, and it's sad to see places go, but that was also a reality of something we've been building up for the past 10 years. Absolutely. Um, so the landscape right there changes, but also we're going to have to look and reflect on how we're serving customers and what our goal is as businesses. Are we profit driven or are we experience driven? Are we food driven and experience driven? Like what is our goal here? And I feel like something with pizza and poly G's and you've already really done this really well. You can continue to give that community experience because pizza is a great community food. And also just this, the way in which it is done, you can continue to drive home that aspect that pizza can be more than just something that you get from Papa John's. Right. Yeah, for sure. And so when you look at the other side of this pandemic, is there anything that's really going to change for you or are you going to continue operating as you did beforehand? I mean, I think we're going to try to get back to normal operations as much as possible. And that's, that's going to be the challenge too. Right. I mean, it's this, this whole pandemic has really just demonstrated, you know, inequities across not only society, but even in like restaurant as a whole, like industry as a whole, there's a big difference with how like the, the like additional payments worked out for my back of house folks versus my front of house folks. And that's mm-hmm. based on how much they were earning. Like mm-hmm. all, all this stuff tied together has been, it's been crazy. So, I mean, I think we're going to see some structural changes, at least within our own organization. Um, but, you know, from, from a big landscape point of view, you're right. It's going to be a lot sparser. There's going to be a lot less restaurants from people to pick from. And, you know, I don't know if that's good or bad necessarily. There's a lot of people that believe those, those that have already closed were probably the ones that were struggling in the first place or those with bad financials or weren't managing the finances. Right. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean they deserve to close. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, we're going to be missing a lot of things, unfortunately. And there's, there's definitely a lot of favorites that have shut down already. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah. I think it's unfair to say that, Oh, they were struggling or hey, they weren't good enough to survive or their books were bad. It, it, it can happen to anyone. If you're, if you're in a neighborhood that the rent is already high and it's already oversaturated for sure, margins in a lot of restaurants are super thin. So it's, it's hard to, you can't justify saying, Oh yeah, you know, they just weren't good enough to survive because maybe they were, and they were doing something with integrity over making a profit. And this just sent them over the edge. And also there were, there are tons of people that are, amazingly creative and that are awesome restaurateurs in so many ways, except they're not good with books. Right. And someone came to them and told them they couldn't operate anymore. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Right. But I mean, this all gets back to too. like, what's the real value of food? What's the real value of a restaurant? Right. 
And the pressure on any like business owner is I have to keep my price within a certain range. Otherwise people aren't going to come. They're going to think it's too expensive. But if we're going to be, if we want to raise everyone up, if we want to raise the front of house and back of house pay to a good hourly wage, get them employment benefits, get them insurance, get them like, you know, 401ks, whatever it is, like realistically, we've got to raise the price of food. Like it, it mm-hmm. shouldn't be a race to the bottom. And that's what the problem is right now. It's constantly a race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in pizza, you know, for the longest time when I was at the farmer's markets, even before COVID, people would come up to me and be like, you're charging $7 for your pizza. And I, <laughs> why can't I just go to Domino's and get a $5 pizza that's bigger, right? <laughs> right. And at some point you can't, you can't win that conversation. Certain people just have a mindset from a pure value perspective mm-hmm. um, that you can't win. I mean, my, my mom was like that she, for a long time. My grandfather still likes Pizza Hut deep dish better than my pizzas. <laughs> I mean, it, it is what it is, right? Uh-huh. I mean, but like realistically, if people want the restaurant experience and people want that full service experience, we've been undercut as like restaurants for a long time. Mm-hmm. And somehow, somewhere, like we all need to understand that we need to start raising the prices a little bit more and figuring out, you know, how do we create a good cost of living for everyone on the team, everyone in the restaurant industry, so they're not just scraping by. So something like a pandemic doesn't just wipe out every single restaurant out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the people who work for oh, it, for too. for sure. Absolutely. Um, I think this is an opportune moment to talk about our experience as a whole as what we expect um, from restaurants, there's this restaurant that Alexi and I always talk about called Manfred's in uh, Copenhagen. And I think they are without a doubt the prime example for me of what a restaurant should be from how they present themselves, um, be it the restaurant, the staff, mm-hmm. the kitchen, everything they do has a sense of integrity and a purpose. And so while that's something you can find in fine dining here in the States, maybe 10 years ago, I'd, I'd say it's something you're, we've been lacking more and more as we've progressed as an industry and there's been an oversaturation. And as you said, there's just this race to the bottom. It's not so much about the integrity that we hold in what we're doing. I feel like we're at this point now where it's just hit the reset button. And again, pay people proportionately give diners the experience that maybe they don't know they're missing Mm -hmm. because they're, they're told the wrong thing. They're fed dominoes on the TV ads. So they think that is pizza. Right. 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 And, and they're, they're, we're conditioned as Americans that the value is what we want. We don't want an experience. And I think all these restaurants competing in Chicago, have been fighting for everyone's pocket that they've lost the value of what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so how do we, how do we transition out of that? How do we get everyone in Chicago from an owner's perspective to realize there's more value in caring about what you're doing and caring about your staff and seeing how that trickles down to the staff and then the customer too? Yeah. No, I think it's tough. I mean, outside of like, a local government or federal government mandate. How do you how do you help raise the bar for everybody without somebody out there basically looking at pure economics and just say, well, if I undercut my price by a couple bucks, like I'm gonna be the best value on the block. Like of course I'm gonna undercut it. I'm gonna get more volume. And mm-hmm. so it's it's a challenge. I don't I don't know what the right answer is, right? Mm-hmm. All you can do is kind of control where you can and make adjustments where you can and hopefully not cross the line to become the most expensive one in the area and you know, people are still coming and supporting you appropriately. So it's tough. Do you think there's value in that though? Even if you are charging more, you're catering to a more um, 
unique experience because of what you're offering. If you're, if you're giving like the, the raise in price comes from having giving equality, equal pay to all your staff and benefits and all that, that seems to have a trickle down effect when I've gone to Europe and see people taken care of from the restaurants because they're mostly government mandates, but um, you see a difference in tone in the service over there compared to here and the overall concepts and what restaurants are trying to convey. Interesting. I've only had terrible service in Europe, so I gotta go, I gotta go where you're going. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's hard to do a compare in a lot of ways. It's a little difficult to do a comparative exercise in that because you're talking about, uh, people that are paid by their restaurant a living wage mm-hmm. in a lot of countries. Whereas here, um, depending on where you are in the US, people are paid a little bit of an amount and then there's tips that substantiate mm-hmm. the rest of that. Right. Um, and there are a lot of restaurants that have tried to go towards that model and customers have been, uh, by and large, unsure as to how to contend with that because it goes against a lot of the culture that they're used to as far as the regulars for your guys on Thursday, right? right like they're right. used to having the customers that come out and tip them nice. And the, that's a thing for the customer too. It's a two way street. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like, uh, I want to jump in on the question that you asked earlier because it ties into something we talked about last week, uh, in relation to, uh, to beer and, Beer is experiencing something somewhat similar in that there's definitely like uh, in craft beer uh, a race to the bottom as far as prices. Mm -hmm. And that has been um, influenced by big investment and by uh, scale. Mm -hmm. Um, But someone's got to flinch and someone has to say, "Okay, these are my values. These are my ethics. I am going to wear that. Um, and this is what my restaurant is going to convey. Mm -hmm. And I think you can only control what you can control, right? Right. You can say, this is what my restaurant does. This is how we go about it. These are our intentions. This is how this all manifests in, in the experience and local government can't tell you what to do. Um, the Illinois restaurant association can't tell you either. Right. So, uh, no, I totally agree. That's, I mean, someone, that's the difference, someone right? Someone has to lead the charge, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you're the first one on the battlefield and you're right in front, you're the first one to get skewered too, typically. So it's mm-hmm. it's a challenge, right? Like, where do you draw that balancing line? And it's, you know, we're, we're trying our best over there. Like, we pay all our staff at least $14 per hour. We split the tips more equally across the whole board. Um, and, you know, it's... People can go work somewhere. Like, front of house service can easily go work. Bartenders can work across the street from me and make mm-hmm. way more than they do at my place, which is unfortunate. But like, yeah. you know, what, what's gonna happen? You, you have to decide like, well, how, you know, how much is it, how much do you want the best people and like the strongest team members? Um, and how much of it is like your internal goals of trying to balance things out for your team and presenting a fair, equitable team like pay rate. And mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's something I struggle with all the time. You know, my, my general manager and I will, talk all the time mm-hmm. about this. And I, you know, we, we stand on opposite ends of this for sure. Like I, if I had things my way, I would take all the tips and like whatever was made for the night, everyone would get a equal split based on their workload that night. Mm-hmm. You know, I think everyone from the dishwasher to the person ro- rolling the dough, making the dough every day, like there's a piece of it that ties into it. Oh yeah. Is, it, is there something to be said for like the person that has to be facing the customer and really dealing with the customer in multiple fashions? For sure. Like I think, you know, that's just as valuable as the food quality that comes out, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But 
Other people value service more. Some people value food more. And so I don't, I don't think there's ever a right answer. And so, you know, it's, it's really just, I keep tweaking and playing and testing. <laughs> and I don't, sometimes my team's okay with it. Other times uh, they, they let me know. Mm-hmm. They let me know. Well, I guess the right answer is when your staff and when your customers are happy, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But I mean, <laughs> and you, know, you too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about ever be happy. We'll, we'll work on it. We'll work on it. We'll that see. sounds like that sounds yeah. like something you and a therapist have to work <laughs> out. <laughs> well, I do think we can all agree the most the position in the restaurant that deserves the most credit, without a doubt, mm-hmm. the dishwasher. Oh, most mm-hmm. most Dude. undercredited position usually gets shit on by most of the staff and it's really sad but i think if i mean i've worked at a restaurant where the dishwasher was treated so poorly Mm -hmm. that they just didn't show up for their shift on a friday night and so everyone crumbled yeah absolutely crumbled yeah because Mm -hmm. what happens eventually you run out of silverware you run out of dishware glassware all the glass everything everything and so, and all of the invisible things that they do too. All of oh the invisible yeah. things, because Absolutely. that person wasn't just a dishwasher in their mind. They were like there to support everyone. Yet they completely got mistreated the whole time they were there. And you know, I think that's so sad that we view these positions and service industry actually as a whole. These people aren't looked on in like the highest of light by a lot of customers. And I think that's another thing that needs to change. Yeah. Because a lot of people are realizing, fuck, if I don't have my restaurant, what? Like I can't. I can't cook, you know? And so now all of a sudden it's this mindset, almost this mind fuck of maybe they are more important than I thought they were. (laughs) Right. So maybe there is some good to come out of this because people will realize the value in these people who are doing something they love that should be valued the same way as any other position in this economy that we work in. Right. Absolutely. Right now, right now we don't have a dishwasher on the team. Every one of the pizza folks like, gets back there and washes dishes. But also the stress isn't there, right? Because we're doing almost mm-hmm. everything to go. So mm-hmm. we're not worrying about plates, glasses, silverware, and all that stuff. But, mm-hmm. you know, that was definitely, you know, anytime we had a dishwasher not show up or call out sick for any reason, it's it's the scariest thing. We got we to gotta send, like, mm-hmm. my manager and I are back there. We got other staff members that are rotating back there and just, like, trying to keep up with loads. And, like, at the end of the night, it's a war zone back there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so much to go through and it's just so steamy hot water splashing left and right like it's not (laughs) you know it's not a fun spot to be in for sure Mm -hmm. i think uh getting back to i'm like mr rewind today but another thing that that you had mentioned about uh manfred's that um that i neglected to mention is that in places like that you have front of house staff that also work back of house positions. Everyone has to know every position in the restaurant in order to have a shift. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And I think that um, this is a philosophy that may be specific to uh, to this group, but I know in uh, fine dining culture in Scandinavia in particular, this is a pretty valued thing because then you learn then the staff respects each other because no job is below anyone which is like a a meta philosophical thing (laughs) that's important in those countries as well um but also um there's a respect that comes through to the customer too because you understand you get to know their needs as well if they're vegan if they have dietary restrictions or you learn them and you respect them and you know how the whole restaurant is going to treat all of that. And that delivers a completely different experience than 
if a dietary restriction is an encumbrance for uh, for a server or for the kitchen. Right. When we showed up, I said I was vegan and it wasn't even a hesitation. This server was like, yep, cool. So immediately I was like, okay, this could be dodgy, but you know, they are mostly vegetarian uh, restaurant anyways, but you know, it's still you, I'm not used to, yeah, okay. And that was it, you know, especially for something that was coarse. You out were too. skeptical. I was, yeah. I was like, <laughs> like uh, oh, this is a little too casual y- for me. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, not only that, they they had the sommelier come out and he's like, yes, these are the ones you're drinking. They're drinking that because this pairs better with what you're having. There was this immediate connection with, okay, you have this allergy, you have this sensitivity. You immediately have a new menu like made for you. That's amazing. A- and that's something I think we could learn from for sure in in the U.S. is yeah. not only with veganism because like we are only one percent of you know the is country. Only one percent? It's that little? I mean, it might be up to two or three, but yeah, it's it's not that much. We're just in a major metropolitan hub where we see a lot of it. Okay. Um, but that being said, there's still a lot of people with gluten allergies or or whatever their allergy may be, and us as restaurant people need to be sensitive to that because some in my case dairy will kill me mm-hmm. right and i'm not the only one with an allergy that will kill them if they have it and some restaurants take it more seriously than others but um there's not this immediate knowledge of if someone were to point to something on the menu usually people have to go back and you know it's good that they're doing that but there's this idea with manfreds where they are trained in the kitchen so they're like oh yeah i've cooked that no you're good yeah, yeah. No, I, lo- I love that idea. I think that's great. We've had a couple people that started with us in pizza line and then eventually moved over to front of house or bartending. And, you know, you, they have a different respect for everything and they have a better mm-hmm. understanding for all the operations and how it runs. And it's, I love it. I mean, I think all the new projects moving forward, the goal is like you have to be able to do just about it. You have to at least rotate through every single position in the house to really get a good understanding of it. Mm-hmm. I think it's super yeah. important. And also that... Um, that type of common understanding because you've worked there or you work side by side with people can be a great opportunity to eclipse things like language barriers where people in, in this country, you see a diverse set of people that work in both front of house, back of house, and particularly in back of house, sometimes there's language barriers. And But there's a great way to build common respect, even if you linguistically can't communicate that well together. And that is that we work side by side. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, my first job, I was a line cook and my second job and my third job. (laughs) But um, there was always that initial language barrier when you go into a new restaurant and, you know, you you learn makeshift uh, kitchen Spanish, but you're never fully developing that um, that language. Right. Right. Because you're only learning what you need to in that context. Um, But you form something deeper and that's the camaraderie of working a Friday night and having 40 steaks on a fucking grill. And it's you and one other guy trying to make sure they're all the right temp. And that's just uh, an experience that you can't replace. And having gone through that and then bringing, translating what that is like to the front of house, I feel like gives you definitely more respect Mm -hmm. for the back of house, Mm -hmm. but more respect for what you're putting in front of people. And I do think, I mean, we, Alexi and I have talked about this many times. If everyone just worked two shifts in a kitchen, they would have a much deeper and profound respect for everyone working back of house and what they're putting in front of people too. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think people think the grass is greener, right? I've definitely had, in, in team discussions, I've definitely had like 
staff say, oh, yeah, just sign me up for like a morning prep shift and I'll just chill out. And they don't they don't <laughs> get it. Like, right. But it's also the other way. Like I've had a back of house guy for a while that like refuses to learn any other positions and he gets upset when servers are on him and being like, that pizza's 25 minutes late. Like what's going on with the pizza? And they're coming back to check on him and he starts getting surly with them. And he doesn't understand because he doesn't have the pressure of that guest giving you death, like mm -hmm. dagger looks every time you walk by without their pizza, getting things ready. And, you know, their kids like screaming and ready and hungry and, you know, they're, they're shielded. And so part of that, it's, it's totally what you said. People need to work each other's positions, even for a couple times. So they really have an understanding of how the whole house works, because otherwise there's a lot of people that just can't open up their perspectives enough to understand, you know, there's different pressures everywhere. Mm hmm. You know, and that kind of feeds into the customer too, right? Um, a lot of customers have never worked in a kitchen or in a restaurant. Oh, absolutely. And so how do you convey to the customer that your food is coming? You're not hated by the kitchen staff. You're not being <laughs> isolated in any way. It's just you're you're at Poly G's where we have all these tables. Look, we're filled like your your orders in a queue and we're getting to you. Yeah. And so then that brings me to the question for you, is the customer always right? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm like, I, I have one distinct memory of a customer that pretty much bitched me out in front of like the whole floor. And like I pulled her aside to the bathroom and she just went, she went off on me, right? And it was, she wanted me to apologize for bringing out a pizza to the wrong table. And I had the ticket, even though and it was a totally different pizza. But for some reason, like, a pizza got misfired, so we had an extra pizza, and we sent it out to the table because it was ready faster than we expected, even though this table came in later than this particular woman's table. And she just wouldn't have it. She, uh, I needed to admit I was wrong. I needed to comp the whole bill. I was a fuck-up of an owner. What the wow. hell were you like? I'm never coming back here again. Like, I couldn't explain my way out of it as much as I tried to, like, explain to her, like, I've got the ticket. This ticket is not for your table. That's a whole different pizza. This is why it came out earlier than yours. I mean, it's it's crazy. And I just, mm -hmm. I can't believe that the guest is always right. Our, our menu doesn't even reflect that. Like we, we put so much effort and time into developing our menu that for the majority of our pizzas, for 85 to 90% of our pizzas, we don't allow substitutions unless you have an allergy because mm -hmm. you know the team spent so much time creatively like building these ingredients. Mm -hmm. um, and so we want people to try it our way first. And then if you really don't like it, Maybe I'll comp it and, you know, we'll send you something else that maybe you'll fit your profile better. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I just, I'm not saying the customer is always wrong by any means, but right. you know, like. How do you equip your staff to contend with that when most other restaurants are making those kinds of accommodations for guests? Oh, it's so challenging. Our first, our whole first year was educating the guest and really telling them like, no, we don't. Sorry, we don't make changes to the pizza. If you do want to make changes, like here's a baseline pizza. We do a cheese pizza and you can either add sausage or pepperoni or basil to it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, we added that probably six months in and that helped a lot. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that was just like people want to have a choice. They want to be able to add some ingredients or take away some ingredients or whatever. They're used to that. It's pizza culture in the U.S., right? right. Go to Domino's, Little Caesars, anywhere you go. It's like. How do you want to build your pizza? Most of people's expectations of pizza are precisely that. Right, is right. that it's something that you call in and you add and whatever you, you want it. on oh, it. Oh, God. And then the half and half. So everyone's like, well, I want a half mushroom <laughs> and a half that and a half, you know. And you're like, how do you convey that a Neapolitan pizza is like eight inches? Oh, absolutely. You know? Right. Like, <laughs> um, so, no, it was a challenge and it was a lot of conversation. And I think, you know, eventually you fight the good fight and it kind of passes on and guests start getting to know that. And like when people bring their friends they start giving them a heads up and they're like, okay, I'm going to bring you to a pizza place tonight. I love the pizza there, but 
you don't get to pick your toppings. You get to pick from 35 different pizzas that are like well-designed, thought out. You can't change the toppings though, unless you have an allergy, mm-hmm. right? And so it, it slowly spreads the word, but it took a long time. We got a lot of upset customers, bad Yelp reviews, this, you know, all sorts of <laughs> stuff that was just like bringing us down for the first like year at mm-hmm. least. Um, there's no real way, honestly, like we have to set a standard and we talk to the staff about it. And then we, you know, help enforce it as much as possible. And for that first year, it was a lot of, oh, hey, you know, let me introduce you to Derek. He's the owner. And then it's me trying to calm them down and talk their way through. You know, my, st- my staff always say, like, when an owner goes to a table, you're treated totally differently than staff. And it's, oh, yeah. it's true, which is, mm-hmm. it's a problem within itself, right? Like, there's a base level of human decency. Like, no matter who you're talking to, there should be a level of respect for each other. It's, it's interesting that like 90% of the time, if I go talk to a table, I get a different experience than the staff does. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, one of the big things is we, we used to have ranch on the menu. We had this togarashi ranch that we made from scratch that was amazing. Great for the salad. I don't want to see anyone drizzle it on a pizza that we've spent <laughs> like, you know, two months designing and making perfect, right? Uh-huh. So we wouldn't allow people to get it and they would throw fits. They'd be like, well, I see ranch on the menu here. Why can't I get ranch? Eventually, we just couldn't fight the fight anymore. Like uh-huh. we, we had to take the take it completely off the menu. So wow, but, but it'll probably make a comeback at the slice shop. So I we'll saw someone mention it online. I think it was Instagram or something, and I think you commented saying, "Yeah, it's coming back." Yeah. But you could tell, you could see the hesitation in in you writing that. Well, and not, like I, I don't dislike ranch by any means, right? Uh, but right. for me, like again, we, we take the time to design that pizza. Like the last thing I want someone to do is throw an overpowering ingredient like ranch all over it, because that now you're destroying all the subtle flavors that we've tried to build up, right? And even before we took it off, we gave people a chance. We said, listen, we're going to put forward the, the three rotating specials this month are all going to feature ranch. We designed three pizzas particularly <laughs> just to put ranch on it, right? So it was like a tater top pizza with ranch drizzle and bacon on it. And it was phenomenal, right? right. But like we designed it for the purpose of having ranch on it. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I think I even offended people with, with doing that. Like I, I launched it and I, you know, called it like, Welcome back to, you know, semi-trashy ranch, last last chance to get it. And then I had at least two, three people that were like, oh, I like ranch. You think I'm trashy? Well, screw you. I'm not coming to your restaurant anymore. I'm like, no, I called the pizza trashy. We're putting tater tots and fancy ranch on a pizza. Like, like it's, come on. You know, like, That's I like a garbage plate. Food. Dude, I, I just killed three Taco Bell burritos before I came here. Yeah. Like, I'm, in, I'm in the White Castle Hall of Fame. So, uh-huh. like, I appreciate good trashy food when it's when it's appropriate. So, right. Yeah. There's a place. There's, There's a place always in time. a place. Yeah. There's a place in time for everything. Yeah. I do think it's interesting that, you know, you brought up how staff are treated differently from owners, but I would even go as far like managing a restaurant as well, seeing how a manager is treated differently from um, its employees. And then even going as far since I am so young when I was a manager at a certain restaurant that I was told I couldn't be the manager because I was so young. Really? And then that they wanted to speak to someone else. Oh, and I thought that was hilarious. So you know what I did? I sent Viv. Okay. Yeah, that yeah. was really funny. You sent the oldest. I said, oldest. no, we won't do it for you <laughs> without stopping short of fuck you. So then Liv goes, or Viv goes over and she's like, yeah, fuck you. Mm-hmm. And what does Viv do? What did Viv, Viv do? Viv was the time? bartender. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. And, but guess what? Because Viv is 20 years older than me. They were like, well, I just got told fuck off by the manager. And I was like, well, I was more delicate about it, but you know what? Here we are. Uh, ageism is a thing as well with with all of this, oh, totally. you know, totally, totally. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, it's, again, it's like a dynamic I would like to see change in our restaurant culture and how patrons um, go out as well, you know, especially with how well you're curating the menu, as you've said, at Poly G's. And then 
I kind of want to dive into the vegan aspect too. So sure. you've embraced vegan food very openly um, at Poly G's. What kind of fed into that? Was it a staff thing? Was it the neighborhood? Because it's also a very vegan uh, heavy neighborhood. Sure. Um, where is 50% of, of your staff vegan? Is that what you're nodding to? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. uh, right now we've got one to two vegans and a couple vegetarians as well. But we always have like a mix in there. Um, mm -hmm. The original Pauly G's in Brooklyn actually started putting out vegan pizzas because one of their main dough makers and recipe developers was vegan. I think he was like vegetarian skirting veganism and then he just started making some vegan pizzas. And then his friends started coming in and so it just became a growth thing. Like Pauly G's became associated associated with veganism. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we've just carried that on and we feel like it's it's a great thing to have. Um, and it's, it's true. There's just not enough vegan options out there, right? I mean, yeah. you know, you go out and the last thing you want is to, for people like not to be able to go out and enjoy a meal with their friends. So, mm -hmm. I mean, vegans don't just hang out exclusively with vegans, right? So you want to have options for other people. Um, and I don't, I don't want to create a pizza that's just like, oh, you're vegan? Here's some arugula and some sauce, man. You're good to go. Like, mm -hmm. we want to do something that's super interesting and super tasty as well that ties to it all. And so yeah. we've always just gone down that path, you know? Um, I think we've always had at least one to two vegans on the team. And it's not, it's not um, a purposeful thing. Like, mm -hmm. it's mostly by accident, and it's mostly probably because we serve. Like, we try our best to make amazing vegan pizza where we can and make them, you know, have Pie Pie My Darling, mm -hmm. have the vile vegan treats and the cookies that we're carrying lately. Like, we just want to have something for everybody as much as possible. It's the same reason why we started doing gluten-free doughs at some point, right? Yeah. Like, once we figured out there's a safe way for us to do it, and the quality is actually really good, um, this, guy, this guy out in Las Vegas taught me how to make it. He's from Good Pie. His name is Vincent Rotolo. And like for the longest time, I'm like, I'm never gonna serve a gluten-free pizza. Like all these things taste like saltine crackers, like 20 <laughs> days aged out. Um, but he introduced me to a, a technique that just was like, this is an amazing gluten-free pizza. Mm -hmm. And so he started teaching me, we tweaked it a little bit to our own, and then uh, we started serving it because it's it's a great product. Like I would eat it any other day, yeah. any, anytime it's available. So really, you know, it's part of that. Just like every family's different now. Every group of friends is different now. You have vegans, you have gluten-freeze, you have, you know, vegetarians. We want to be a place where it's pizza is a community food. You want to be a place where people Absolutely. have the chance to get together as a community and still be able to enjoy a great meal and not feel like they're like the forgotten leftover, right? Like they're the, they're the one that gets like the simple salad at the steakhouse because everything else is like doused in bacon fat type of deal, right? <laughs> uh -huh. So... Yeah, no, I think um, it's an important thing going into, um, you know, modern dining culture is, you know, making sure there is an option for everyone. But the way you do it is that you make sure you do it well. And I think that's the most important thing, because anyone, like you said, can slap a salad on the menu and call it a day. Right. It's being thoughtful in how you make those options available to those people and there is no other vegan pizza in Chicago that is like vegan pizza at Pauly G's. Oh, thank you. There really isn't because the dough, I mean, the dough is the dough. That's That was already vegan, but it's the thoughtfulness that goes into the toppings and the curation where everything is balanced out, right? Mm -hmm. You don't really find that kind of thoughtfulness in pizza restaurants um, when it, in general, actually, because I'm like now thinking to all these pizza places, you don't really find that much uh, thoughtfulness and creativity going into it, but especially with the vegan option at those places. So for me, it's nice to be able to go to a pizza restaurant and be able to get like a vegan margarita type pizza or something even more 
you know, crazy and extreme, but still delightful as all hell, you know? I think you just got to commit. Like, if you're going to go down the route, don't do not do it half-assed. Like, right. why, why do anything half-assed, right? Like, when we started doing vegan squares, I, like, I bought probably 10 to 12 cheeses from Whole Foods just to test, like, how does this melt? How does this taste when it's melted? What's the timing on the melt? Like, if you're going to commit to your craft, do it all the way. And just test everything on the market that you know. Try it all and understand what you're getting yourself into and serve the best product that you can. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think that's something we can all agree with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, something that struck me that was uh, one of the better lessons that I've learned from restaurants as well is that you train your customers to be staff members as well. And that is uh, precisely the year that you went through of um, uh, having a variety of different experiences with guests. But once you've trained them on the program, then your staff is a lot larger, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've worked in a place that uh, we our uh, our customers were better than our staff. To be honest with you, <laughs> that's awesome. They uh, they were well trained and they uh, they multiplied and it was uh, mm -hmm. it was phenomenal. And in order to do that, you have to have uh, a lot of integrity, though. I think uh, because people can see that pretty easily, especially people that go out a little bit and are out at restaurants maybe more than once a week or once every other week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They see that just by value of, uh, you know, comparative thought and also um, through experience. And I, I think that that's the most important thing. And I hope that for the businesses that kind of come through this, that they're the t integrity that was there before is just strengthened um, because it takes a shitload of resolve and resourcefulness mm -hmm. to be able to make it through this. It's a lot. So everyone's, you know, every business and everybody is struggling through this in some mental or physical way. So it's, it's a tough time for all, for sure. Um, Definitely. Out of curiosity, uh, do you have any thoughts on um, how the Illinois Restaurant Association or how our government uh, could be acting or uh, or what they could be doing for businesses to help out at this time that may not have been explored at this point? Or are they doing a phenomenal job and just the virus <laughs> is the virus? <laughs> I mean, a lot of it's the virus is the virus, right? We can only control so much and the population is going to do what they do. Like people, especially nowadays, people have such separate like point of views and mindsets that, you know, they it's very much like, well, if I want to go out and I don't want to wear a mask, that's what I'm going to do unless someone tells me otherwise. Um, you know, I, I think part of the answer lies in, it, it needs to be more top down. And mm -hmm. I think for restaurants to survive, right, they need relief and rent as part of it, right? Mm -hmm. And in order to get relief and rent, the landlords need to get forgiveness to some degree from the bank, right? And right. so in order for that to happen, the feds need to bail out the banks in some portion. Right. So I do feel like, you know, I like the fact that there's stimulus checks going to the population at an individual level, but also something needs to be done from the top down and mm -hmm. announced on a large scale so that, you know, forgiveness can come all the way through to the middle. And I think that's going to help a lot. Because, you know, ultimately, you know, I've got a landlord. Everyone, everyone that's got a restaurant or bar has a landlord unless they fortunate enough to own enough money to buy out their own business in the building. And, you know, they have a mortgage too. They have a mortgage, they have insurance payments, they have other things that they have to pay for. So I get it. Like they can only give you so much forgiveness or so much, so much of a break. And, you know, if that's their main source of income, like I get that too. Like they have to figure out how to balance that out. Yeah. Um, so really it's just like, I think everything from the top chain down just needs more attention as well, including mm -hmm. what the bottom chain has. And the unfortunate thing is, you know, all this is stuck in politics right now. Right. So it's, 
you know, we've, we're, we got one stimulus check out, which is great, and that helped a lot. Um, but we, I think everyone needs more. And Definitely. trying to figure out how we get there is, is the tough part. So I couldn't agree more. Do you want to dive a little bit into the beer? Yeah, we can uh, dive yeah. into this a little bit before we uh, I was, sco scoot. I was pretty stoked uh, to open this bottle from Logsdon. It's a smaller farmhouse producer in, uh, in Oregon. And it's their most well-known beer called Passion Brett. Uh, it's a Saison, an elevated alcohol content, um, fermented in oak, mixed culture. Actually, the um, the owner of Logs did. Uh, actually, I don't remember if he's gotten bought up. In any event, the guy that started it also uh, had uh, a company called Y East, which was uh, at the time of origin, one of the larger yeast labs in America for commercial wow. brewers. So total nerd in short. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. And this is his high, uh, his most highly rated beer, Passion Brett, uh, aged in oak with peaches uh, from two, this this bottling from 2018. I think this was the last year it was bottled in these beautiful 750s. 750 size bottles. <laughs> um, but let's, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's do a right pour here. Yeah, do whatever you want. Um, so like a saison, is this is this meant to be served cold or room temperature? Or and I, now I'm just trying to learn. Uh, you've got the perfect temperature there. So yeah. if you're drinking is, beers this like excellent. this where um, you want to experience everything, you want it at that uh, something a little closer to room temperature. So I like it at 60 degrees. Um, I like to let it warm up. We're drinking the sediment at the bottom, which is not aesthetically pleasing, but <laughs> pleasing to the palate for it's all sure. The flavor, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. definitely. All the all the good yeast, all the good yeast, yeah, yeah. helping my settles uh, down my gut health here. Yeah, um, microbacteria. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but I, I think what this beer became known for uh, was that the Brett and the peaches came together in a way that had almost like a peaches and cream quality to it. For sure, mm -hmm. um, and that was like because with these styles of beer, they're very complex, so it's simple. It's hard to for people to latch onto something that's like simple and easy to digest because there's so much that's happening right it's hard to identify when you're hit with like a barrage of flavor yeah, yeah. um i think as this beer gets older um the flavors become a little more like immersed and it's harder to get that specific flavor and that's not mm -hmm. always relevant year over year but i think that you still get oak you still get peaches and you get definitely uh, acid as well which is an important part of this of the profile of this beer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a huge nostalgia factor for this pe for this beer for people as well. You know, everyone's had peaches and cream in some form. Yeah. Well, actually, except for me. But if everyone can eat dairy, then they've had peaches and cream. But there's still the the very hearty peach flavor that I'm just absolutely in love with. Oh, it's delicious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is one of my favorite beers. Mm -hmm. Were you uh, were you interested in craft beer before uh, before opening up a restaurant? I mean, I think I've always tried different stuff out there based on what. Like my brother in law is a huge beer fan, beer nerd. Tries all sorts of things from around the world. Loves craft beers, local. So you know, whenever he would get stuff, I'd try some stuff with him. Um, but I've you know, it's an area where, like I said, it's my weak point. I'm, I have lots to learn, lots to try. Um, and my my manager will really into beer. So he's responsible for our beer program. So he's he's bringing in new stuff all the time. I try to be around on Wednesdays when the beer reps come by with all the new stuff and just mm -hmm. little tastes of everything just to figure out, learn more about the palate. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. You got a favorite you want to recommend? Something I should be checking out? Oh man. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, I like I like this one. We did pretty well on this one today. Yeah. Um, um, 
Yeah, I, I, you know, I definitely <laughs> think uh, everyone should try the beer, a beer that I make with Metropolitan. This is a little bit of a guilty plug <laughs> called Humbucker. Oh. It's okay. a, a Dortmunder, ah, so like gotcha. a slightly stronger hoppy pale lager. Um, made it a couple times in the past. It's now a year-round beer uh, that they produce um, that I'm very, very happy with. Very it's cool. Cool thing to have a collaboration become yeah. a year-round beer. Definitely. Yeah. Let's go around the horn. Yeah, what, man. what do you like, Sam? Uh, another collab actually is uh, the brown ale that we made with uh, Scorched Tundra and Spiteful. Okay. Um, maybe I'm throwing that one up there a little early. We did it with someone else before, but um, it's very nutty. It's very chocolate driven and it's got this awesome toffee flavor profile, yet still maintains a very light body. So it's that richness that you expect in like, maybe a lighter stout, mm -hmm. but it drinks like almost like a lager. It's beautiful. Love it. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Always more to try. Always more to learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's the what's the best selling beer at uh Poly G's? Um let's see. We're we're partnered with 312 right now to do some specials with them. Surly Hell has always done really well, but that's because we also have a Monday special where you can get like a $15 wood-fired pie and then you can get a Surly Hell with it and a shot on the house. Oh, that's a, um, that's yeah. a, steal. That's a really good it's, deal. Yeah. I know where I'm it's, going on Monday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, we, we took it off because we don't have dining anymore. So now Mondays we have like $10 for two slices and a beer and a, and a beer, I think. Yeah, and a beer because we can't serve shots technically through the window. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so, you know, once we get reopened again, we'll get that back running again. It was it was a great deal. And it's, it's a way to be like, hey, I survived Monday. Let me treat myself to 15 bucks and beer shot and like a, you know, 10, 11 inch pizza for myself. So not a bad way yeah. to go. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as the future place that you had alluded to, is this uh, going, is there going to be an intention in the future to have dine in as well? Or is it just going to be uh, like a window kind of thing that you're, that you're doing so yeah, far? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we can talk about it Do okay. you remember as Bonchi? much as you'd like. Do yeah. you remember Bonchi and Wicker Park? Uh, at the six corners. Yeah. At the six corners. That's yeah. what, that's what we're taking over. Nice. So unfortunately, or fortunately for me, I guess, Bonchi yeah. closed <laughs> probably March, April, right around April ish, I think, mm -hmm. um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and then we, you know, we took over the space just recently. We just signed probably two weeks ago. So we're getting ready to do some light construction, give it a facelift and then install two windows. Cause you know, similar to our staff now, we don't want people to dine in yet. But I think that spot's mm. got about maybe 25 to 32 seats. So there can be some dine in, but our target with that is really gonna be like New York style, grab mm -hmm. and go, egg sandwiches in the morning for people commuting, grab something quick. And then nice. like come like 11 p.m. at night, we're just gonna shut down, no more walk-in, but you can get slices until probably two or 3 a.m. Mm -hmm. um, That's so, amazing. Yeah. Especially with such high traffic in that neighborhood. like. I used to live around there and I know I would walk, like if there was a place where I could actually just walk up to a window instead of having to go in, just grab a slice and walk around. Dude, that's that's what that's, we're going for, right? And I yeah. see like Flash Taco. Flash Taco's been there like 21 years, oh, yeah. right? And it blows my mind that they like, and, and we know why, like you get out of the clubs or bars <laughs> or performance venues in there, you're drunk, a little tipsy. They're like, what food's around? Well, the only thing is Flash Taco and they're, uh -huh. they're killing it over there. So, you know, we, we wanna be able to provide just a little bit more, something else um you know different something different so we'll be doing pizzas um and we want pizzas in the window which is just kind of like what we're doing at poly g's right now right mm -hmm. well, it's great to see like people walk by and then they like peek over their shoulder like they're checking someone out and then like 
20 seconds later, they turn around on the block and come by and buy a slice. And so we're thinking with that kind of traffic, it'll it'll hopefully be really good for us. Yeah. Um, and good for the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Hopefully yeah. We're providing something. I mean, there's a lot of pizza in that neighborhood. There's like yeah. Peace Pizza. There's Demos down the street. Um, there's there's a lot of amazing pizza. Um, so we're hoping to do something a little different than everyone there. And the challenge is, you know, Demos does a great New York slice already. And they have some mm-hmm. amazing like mac and cheese, whack ingredients, all sorts of cool stuff. So I, I want to try not to intersect with them too much because the last thing I want to do is impinge on someone else's business. But this was just too good of an opportunity for us to pass up. And we're like, let's figure out what we can do with this spot and, you know, have some fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, it's exciting. Like we're bringing up two of our staff members, making the managing partners. They get to partner up and help lead this thing. So, you know, we get to grow a little. My staff gets to grow a little and we can create more jobs. And, every, you know, the people that are involved get to step up and, you know, hopefully help carve a little future for them, too. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Well, we wish you all the best. We will definitely be at that first Monday back when everything <laughs> is wait. open again. Can't wait. And uh, for everyone out there who is a Chicago listener, definitely swing by, pick up a slice, do some pre-orders at Polly G's in Logan Square. Do you have any last comments you want to make? Or? No, thank you for having me on this podcast. Yeah. yeah. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for picking up a beer that like fit my profile perfectly, too. Absolutely. You guys hit it I still awesome. got it. <laughs> After all these still years. Got it. This is perfect. <laughs> service, awesome. Exempt service. Perfect. Woo! Yeah. Nailed it. Well, yeah, this was a this was a pleasure. And mm-hmm. now, like, I'm just gonna want pizza every day, <laughs> so I know where I'm going. Yeah, we serve it every day, but we can't Beautiful. get you in yet. So let me know when you come by, and uh, we'll we'll get some treats in there for you for sure. Love oh, this so is lovely. Much. Thank you so much, Derek. Hey, thanks, guys. Thank all you. Right. We'll see you all next week. Bye.